Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to be with you and to, to experience the presence of God as you're worshipping. And uh, must say how much Rosie and I have enjoyed Chester. I mean, it's a, for a southerner, I mean, it's a real hidden British gem. <laughs> it's a, an amazing place. Um, went round the cathedral yesterday, really enjoyed that, just enjoyed the atmosphere of the city. And... Uh, Getting a real strong sense that uh, God's hand is on this place. You know, it's got a, seems to have, to me, to have quite a remarkable history. And uh, I, I believe God's going to do something really, really big here. So I want to encourage you with that. And uh, there's things that we haven't seen. Um, the famous Chester Zoo, we haven't been to. I'd love to do that. Actually, the Chester Zoo reminds me of a story about a young guy who'd done his uh, zoology degree at university and he wanted to work in a zoo, so he went along to the zoo to see if there was any work and um, he spoke to the head zookeeper and uh, the head zookeeper said to him, well, you seem very highly qualified, but we haven't got any work here for, for you at the moment. So the young man was very disappointed. He said, well, surely there must be something that I can do. So the head zookeeper said to him, well, um, as it happens, there is something, but it's a little bit unusual, and you are overqualified for this. Our gorilla has just died, and it's half-term, the kids are going to be coming, and the gorilla's a bit of a star attraction. We just wondered if just for a couple of days you could dress up in a gorilla suit and just act the part. We've got a new one that's coming, Um, would you be able to do that? So um, he said, well, it isn't exactly what I had in mind, but I'll give it my best shot. So he dressed up in the gorilla suit, and the first day he was absolutely hopeless. Um, Nobody was interested, and, you know, just kind of stood there. Um, So the zookeeper came, head zookeeper came up to him and said, look, you've got to really act the part. Um, It's no good just standing there. So after two or three days, he was really getting into the part. I mean, there was one of these tires that was hanging up from a tree and he was swinging on it. And um, after a few days, he'd become a bit of a star attraction and people were gathering around. Well, he'd so got into the part that as he was swinging, he got so enthusiastic, he came straight out of the gorilla pit and ended up in the lion's pit. So here he was confronted by this huge lion. So he starts to shout, help, help. So the lion came up to him and said, listen, mate, if you don't shut up, we've both got the sack. (laughs) It's important to be authentic. Whatever we're doing, it's important to be authentic. And I want to talk about being an authentic Christian this morning, not dressing up in the suit, but actually being an authentic Christian. And the mark of authenticity for any believer is their quality of life, the way they live, but empowered not just by the truth of God's word, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christianity is a supernatural religion. It's not just that we believe some things and 
uh, like that's it. It's not just an intellectual thing, it's a supernatural religion, it's an empowered religion and it's this that makes Christianity different from every other major world religion. It is that we are in relationship with the living God, that we know God personally. And it's not just that we have a belief system, it is that we have a relationship and we have a dynamic change that's happened to us on the inside. And I want to address myself to that this morning and look at the quality of life that we have in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, he's God, it's not an it, it's not, he's not an influence, he is a person. And as Christians, we are to know the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, churches like ours have been labelled as charismatic churches, and that means that we have not just a belief in the Holy Spirit, but we should have an experience of the Holy Spirit. And I'm on a bit of a crusade at the moment to keep things that we know and believe really alive so that we're not just charismatic in name only, but are learning to live in the dynamic power of the presence of the Spirit, how to engage with him and how to live a life that is Spirit-filled. And I find many Christians stop short of living in the fullness of the Spirit um, because they see various crisis experiences of the Spirit, being born of the Spirit or being baptised in the Spirit, as the kind of end goal. But actually, those crisis experiences of the Spirit are there to empower us to live in the life and the dimension of the Holy Spirit. Now, this goes against our natural worldview, like... uh, Um, You know, I grew up in the 50s and the 60s where we were educated with a very materialistic, secular worldview, and that is still pretty much true now, although people are much more open to spiritual things. Uh, uh, It would have been in in the 60s, um, John Lennon and George Harrison were, were being interviewed, and it was at the time when they were going to India to find this spiritual experience. And uh, Paul McCartney said uh, of George Harrison that there uh, there was something about George Harrison that believed that he could get through to the other side and that would affect his music. And that's where his album, Mice, um, uh, These Things Shall Pass, with with that song... um, Uh, you know, with the Harry Krishna stuff in it. It was a very significant thing that happened in the rock music world in the late 60s. And it opened up a whole wave of understanding that mankind is not just a physical, mental being, but there is a spiritual dimension to it. And uh, I suppose in life today, people are much more open to that. You know, I've lived for 50 years in Brighton and Brighton is the kind of place where kind of anything goes and people are looking for spiritual reality. And sometimes as Christians, we can be a bit nervous of what the Holy Spirit 
appears to do um, in the sense that, um, you know, will we become weird? You know, will we do things that are a bit strange? And how will non-Christians relate with that? Well, in my experience, especially recently, people are much more open. And so it's very important that we learn to engage with the Holy Spirit and learn to live the life of, in, in the Holy Spirit because that is the empowering that we have to reach out into the world that we're seeking to reach. So I'm going to read two passages of Scripture and draw some lessons from them. The first is from the Old Testament, and it's from Ezekiel and chapter 47. Now Ezekiel was a prophet, and he was like a prisoner of war. Um, He was in in Babylon, and uh, Jerusalem had fallen, and the Jews had been taken into captivity, and Ezekiel was a, a prophet who'd been taken prisoner, and he was a man who was seeking God and praying, and God gave him various prophetic visions. He had, an, like the first chapter, he has this amazing vision of God. But in chapter 40, and between chapter 40 and 48, Ezekiel has this incredible vision of the temple. Now, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And uh, Ezekiel has this vision of a restored temple. But the vision seems to go beyond just another temple being built in Jerusalem. This vision points to a whole new era where the glory of God was going to come to the earth and flood the earth. Now, the whole concept of temples in the Old Testament is to do with the presence, the manifest presence of God filling and flooding his people and people living and enjoying his presence. And so we see this right from Eden, the Garden of Eden, right through uh, the, the Exodus and through the Kings and, uh, and the books of, of Chronicles. There were times when the presence of God was so manifested, so glorious, so powerful, but it was all pointing to an era when it would go beyond just the Jewish people and would reach out to all the nations of the earth. So God had a much bigger plan than was just tied up with the people of God in the Old Testament. It was that the nations of the world would be reached. And so the Jews were constantly looking for an era where what they called a Messiah would come. And in this prophecy of Ezekiel's about the temple, he is prophesying about a time that would come in the future where the temple would be so filled with the glory of God that the power of God would reach to the ends of the earth. And so he has a vision of this temple being filled with God's glory, and then he sees this vision of a river. So this is what he says about this. Then he, that's the Holy Spirit, brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from the south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate 
by the way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. When the man went toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits. And he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. Again he measured and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the loins. Again he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not ford, for the water had risen enough, enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. He said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river there were very many trees, on the one side and on the other. Then he said to me, these waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. Then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there and the others become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. That's a key phrase. Everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand before it. From Engedi to Eneglaim, there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. By the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So what Ezekiel is seeing here, on one level, we could say it's a kind of natural phenomenon because it's, all, it's like a description of where the River Jordan runs into the Dead Sea. You know, I don't know if you've ever been to the Dead Sea. Rosie and I went to Israel once and we went there and it is an amazing place. I mean, it is really true. You can really lay on it and read your newspaper paper it's absolutely dead and there's nothing living around it there are no trees it's arid it's hot it's a very strange geographical phenomenon and it's almost like uh, Ezekiel is seeing this in the natural but it becomes supernatural just to say if you have a prophetic gift keep your eye on what's going on around you because I find God often speaks through natural phenomena, through things that we see, and he brings teaching to us through that. And that's a bit like what is happening here with Ezekiel. But it goes beyond the natural into the supernatural because what Ezekiel is actually describing here from this river that's flowing from the temple is blessing that is not just going out into the local area, but it's a blessing that is reaching the nations of the earth. This river is flowing out and everywhere the river goes, there is fruitfulness. And the river brings life, it brings energy. So where there were fish, cat, fish fishermen, uh, there were now, instead of net casters, there were fish catchers. There were people who were being successful in what they were doing. Trees were growing, there was life, there was energy, 
there was power, there was vitality to this river touching the whole of life. Now, how do I know from this that this is about not just for the time, but for future blessing? It's because we read about this river in the book of Revelation. Right at the end, this river is flowing. So the Bible starts with rivers in the Garden of Eden. We've got this river in the middle of the Bible in Ezekiel, and we've got it flowing right at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. So what does this mean for us today? Because we see a progression in this river. First of all, it starts, Ezekiel gets in, it's up to his ankles, then it's up to his knees, then it's up to his waist, then he's swimming in it, and it's as though he's kind of flooded with it, But it's not just that he's in it, it's just that this river is effective in bringing change to the world. Now, a key way of understanding this we find in John, in John chapter 7. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment a very important occasion, Um, something like, say, a school speech day you know, where all the teachers are in their gowns and, um, you know, everybody has to be in the right place at the right time. Or maybe a royal wedding, you know, in um, the royal chapel. You know, there, there is the etiquette. Everybody's in the right place. Now, imagine what would happen if in the middle of an occasion like that, somebody stood up, you know, Sky News is there, everybody's there, um, newspaper reporters are there, a solemn occasion like that, imagine somebody just standing up in the middle and start shouting something. It would be massive, massive news. Okay, well, that's a little bit like what happened in this story here in John chapter 7 and verse 37. And it says this, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood... And cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now let's just set the context for the moment. This was the last day of the feast and it was the Feast of Tabernacles which went on for seven days and it was a time of great rejoicing, drinking, feasting and it was a time of celebrating and remembering the time in the past when the children of Israel were Uh, going through the Exodus, living in what they called booths or tabernacles or uh, not permanent dwellings. So the Jewish people would erect these kind of booths on their verandas and near their houses and they'd live in them for a week. And it was a time of incredible celebration, singing, dancing, lots of eating, lots of drinking, lots of parties. And uh, on the last day of the feast what would happen would be that the high priest would go down to the pool of Siloam and he would fill up a pitcher of water and he would carry this pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam up quite a steep path up to the temple. 
and he would, he would carry it and then he would take it into the temple and he would go up to the altar and he would pour out the water over the altar. Now, it was a prophetic symbol. It was also a remembrance of and a thankfulness for the fact that God had given them rain and given them harvest. But it was a prophetic enactment, really, of Ezekiel's river being poured out. And it was in anticipation of this new messianic age. So he would do that. And the Jewish people, as he was doing that, would understand it was a kind of prophetic statement about something that God was going to do. And the Jewish people were looking for that new age, this Messiah coming. Now, the interesting thing about this, and we get this from from the, the Jewish culture, was that when the high priest did this and carry this water pot up to the temple, even though it had been a time of great celebration and singing and dancing and shouting, just for those few minutes while he was doing that, walking up in stately procession, the people would be absolutely silent. And they would just stand, hushed, kids all quiet, everybody quiet, and he would make this procession and there would be a real sense of awe, a real sense of occasion about it. While this was happening, suddenly this apparent lunatic jumps up and shouts, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And this was a totally shocking thing to do. It was totally disrupting the whole thing. And Jesus could have been arrested just for doing that. And it says some wanted to stone him just for doing that. What Jesus is doing is saying what is being enacted here, what is being prophesied here is fulfilled in me. He was declaring his messianic mission. And it was all about this new age that was going to come, this new age of the Spirit. So John commenting on these rivers of living water, and the Jewish people would have understood the imagery of that from the Old Testament. What John says is that Jesus was speaking about the Spirit who had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So something was going to need to happen for this new era, this new age that was prophesied in the Old Testament, prophesied by Ezekiel and many others. Something needed to happen first. Now, I don't know if you noticed when we read the Ezekiel passage that the river flowed from beneath the altar. The altar was a place of death and sacrifice where blood was shed. And so John commenting on Jesus' statement says that he is talking about the spirit who's not yet been given because Jesus has not yet been glorified. 
Now, this was quite an important statement because the glorification of Jesus meant that the Spirit would come. Now, what do we mean by the glorification of Jesus? We often sing about Jesus being glorified. We sing it in our worship songs. There are many songs we talk about Jesus being glorified. Well, what does that actually mean? Well, the glorification of Jesus is the sum total of all the events that are around the Easter story. So the entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey, the mock-up of a trial, Gethsemane, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. It's all part of the glorification of Jesus. All of that together glorifies Jesus. But the greatest moment of the glorification of Christ came when he ascended and went back to heaven to be with his father. Now, I don't think we make enough of the ascension in our Christian calendar. When I was a, a little boy at school, I went to a Church of England school in, in um, my village. And on Ascension Day, we used to get the day off. It was a, a holiday for the school. Now, I think that that would be a pretty good idea to have another bank holiday, Ascension Day. I, I would love that. So we used to look forward to Ascension Day. But the great thing about the Ascension is that Jesus' work was not only completed, but as he ascended into heaven, he heard the well done of his Father. He was seated at the right hand of his Father, having single-handedly completed the work of our redemption. And you can imagine that all heaven would have applauded as Jesus triumphantly as our King enters heaven, having suffered, having died, having risen again from the dead, now enters into heaven, the work is done, salvation has been accomplished and all of heaven would have rejoiced the psalmist in Psalm 24 prophetically sees that and says lift up your heads O you gates lift up your heads you ancient doors that the king of glory may come in who has ascended to the hill of the Lord he that has clean hands and a pure heart is not lifted up his soul to vanity is not sworn deceitfully he shall receive the blessing from the Lord that's about Jesus it's about Jesus entering heaven victoriously. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? The only one worthy with the clean hands and the pure heart is him. He's done it. He's victorious over all the powers of darkness, over all the powers of sin. He enters the heaven, at heaven. He goes to his father and the father says, well done, son. You did it. And crowns him with glory and honour and the anointing oil. Jesus is crowned and that anointing oil spills over into an upper room where some disciples are praying and they are filled with the Holy Spirit and the river is now flowing. Jesus is glorified and the Spirit is poured out on the church. And so what Jesus prophesies here 
is made possible through the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And that is why Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when he preaches, he says, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. The Holy Spirit had come on the day of Pentecost. There was something to see and hear. These disciples, instead of weak and cowering in an upper room for fear of the Jews, here they were out in the streets preaching, praising, worshipping God in other languages, and everybody knew. And so Peter says, therefore, having been exalted, Jesus has poured this out. And that is what the Holy Spirit does. He glorifies Jesus. So what I want to do now is go back to the river and talk about the different stages that Ezekiel goes through. Because what it speaks to me of are different aspects of how the Holy Spirit engages with us and works works with us. So I'm going to look for a few moments at what I would call the crisis experiences of the Holy Spirit. So it was like Ezekiel, first of all, gets in up to his ankles, then he gets in up to his knees, but there's more. And so he goes further, and then he goes further, and then he's eventually swimming in the river. Now, there are various points in our life where the Holy Spirit works in us in a way that I I would describe it as a, a critical working. So before you were a Christian, the Holy Spirit was working in your life. You could not become a Christian without the activity of the Holy Spirit. Job said, can a man by searching find God? Well, not really, because it's God who seeks us. And it's the Holy Spirit who wakes us up. It's what the old Puritans used to call the effectual call. We could say it's the alarm clock, the spiritual alarm clock going off. There's something that happens inside us. God speaks to us. We were dead in our sins, but we are awakened, we're stirred, and we come to faith. And then we are born of the Spirit. Through repentance and faith, we are born of the Spirit. And being born again is a vital experience. It's an essential experience. It is being born again that makes you a Christian. You are born into the family of God. You you receive the genetic likeness of the Father because the Spirit is within you. What an amazing concept. And Jesus, we are made to be like him. Jesus is our elder brother. It's amazing. It's amazing. We have the genetic endowment of God. So we're no longer orphans. We're no longer fatherless. We are born again. We are born anew. It's ever so important. We value our new birth. Thank God I'm saved. When we were in the cathedral yesterday, we had this amazing guide who was brilliant. And he told us about Cromwell's siege around the... uh, uh, around the, the, the city walls and then coming in and knocking bits of um, Roman Catholicism off the, the kind of cathedral. Um, Cromwell's a very interesting character in, in history, but he, Cromwell and the Puritan kind of um, uh, government 
that, that came, came as a reaction to King Charles I of England. And King Charles was one of, he, he was Protestant, but he was kind of very sympathetic with the Catholics, and he tried to kind of um, fuse the two. And he forced on the Puritans, on the Evangelicals, the prayer book. And so in Scotland, where they had the Presbyterians who'd uh, come up under the preaching of, of John Knox, he made it illegal for these Scottish Christians to meet. They were called Covenanters. And there was actually a death sentence on them if they didn't use the prayer book and if they met as Covenanters. So this was why you got Cromwell coming to Chester and marching around the walls because he's so objected to all that. Anyway, that's, uh, that's um, not the point of the story. So anyway, um, the Scottish Covenanters Covenanters were not allowed to meet. Well, one day there was this young girl going along to the meeting, the Covenanter meeting, and she was stopped by the English soldiers. And they were going to, uh, they suspected that she was going to a Covenanter meeting. So the soldiers said, said to her, where are you going? Well, she didn't want to tell a lie, but she didn't want to betray where the meeting was. So with a remarkable piece of insightful theology, she said, well, you see, sir, my eldest brother has died and I'm going to my father's house to hear the will read. <laughs> she, knew, she knew who she was. She knew that she was born again. And when you are born again, you are born into an amazing inheritance. You know, Colossians 1 tells us that we are born again to a living inheritance. So the legacy is that we have this life, we have the promises of God, we have the word of God, but it's the spirit within us who makes that legacy real and he makes it possible for us to appropriate. Now there is another stage after being born again where we can be flooded, immersed with, baptised with the Holy Spirit. And so we see through the book of Acts, and I know you're going to be doing the book of Acts in, in the next few weeks, and I'm sure that, that, that you will see this. There are various times in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit comes upon believers. And for instance, in Acts 8, there are loads of people that get saved in the revival un, under Philip, but then the apostles come up from Jerusalem, lay hands on the new believers, and they are baptised, filled, flooded with the Holy Spirit. Paul goes to Ephesus and he finds a group of believers there, but they didn't really understand fully the gospel. And so Paul gives them the gospel, baptises them, and then he says to them, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said, we, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul prays for them and they are baptised in the Holy Spirit and they speak with tongues and prophesy. Now, I just want, want to say that sometimes that does happen at conversion. It can do. But I find generally people are so taken up with their, getting their sins forgiven and becoming born again that it's usual that it happens after conversion. Now, I'm not going to say that, it, it, like, that is a rigid thing because God can do what he wants when he wants. And in Acts 10, 
when Peter was preaching to these Gentiles, the Holy Spirit came down on them and they were saved and baptised in the Spirit all at once. So I know that can happen. But usually, it's just like Ezekiel goes a bit further on in the river, there is a time to be flooded, baptised with, immersed in the Holy Spirit. I can remember that happened to me as a young evangelist in the Salvation Army. I'd never seen anybody saved And so I began to read books about William Booth and Spurgeon and Wesley, and they all had this baptism in the Spirit. So I began to seek God for it, uh, or for him, rather. And there came that moment when I was baptised in the Spirit. It was in my bedroom, and the power was in the middle of the afternoon. The power of the Holy Spirit flooded me. It was a dynamic experience. And the first thing that I did, I got up out of my room, I went down the street, I got a friend who'd recently been baptised in the Spirit who worked in the local garage. I told him we had a glory time together and was straight out into the street <coughs> witnessing to the local village policeman who was standing on the street corner and he didn't know what had hit him. <laughs> That's what the Holy Spirit is given to us for, that we might be witnesses empowered to be witnesses and the next time I preached 20 people responded and came forward at the altar call same gospel same message but now empowered by the spirit the interesting thing is at the time I didn't believe in speaking in tongues but I still knew that I was baptized in the spirit I I didn't I, I, I was what you might call a cessationist I didn't believe in speaking in tongues but I knew I was baptised in the Spirit. But when I read the Bible, I thought, if I'm baptised in the Spirit, I must be able to speak in tongues. So I did. (laughs) Um, But often, people do speak in tongues when they're baptised in the Holy Spirit. And people can get a hang-up about speaking in tongues because, um, you you know, I won't understand what I'm saying. No, you won't, because your mind is not fruitful, but your spirit is built up. So it's a supernatural gift that God gives us in order that we can, um, so, so that we can relate with him, that we can commune with him. The spirit knows what we need and he prays within us. But sometimes he gives us a language. So I was once on a, a mission trip in, in Morocco, in, in North Africa, in a missionary conference and there were missionaries from all over the world there. And I was speaking, gave an appeal at the end and people came forward for prayer to receive the Spirit. And there was this lady there and she was weeping and she was in a right state. And I just laid hands on her and started praying in tongues over her. And her husband said to me, I didn't know you could speak Dutch. I said, I can't speak Dutch, what do you mean? He said, well, you've just been speaking in fluent Dutch. And and, uh, like talking all about her problems and God's just releasing her from them. So that, that can happen. Um, it doesn't often happen, <laughs> but, it, but it can happen. And so um, tongues is an incredible gift of the Holy Spirit and is a gateway into the supernatural. But what I find is that, that sometimes Christians get so far with the baptism in the Holy Spirit And then, once they've received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, they settle for that. Um, When there is so, so much more, we are to go on being filled with the Spirit. 
so it's not just that we're filled once and that's it. We go on being filled with the Spirit. And the epistles are full of that kind of teaching. So in Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I sometimes hear preachers illustrate that by uh, taking a glass of water, pouring it out and saying, well, in our Christian life, we empty ourselves out, so we need to be refilled. Um, But in this case, it doesn't actually mean that. It means be filled with in the sense of be preoccupied with. So, you know, when I first met Rosie... um, the first thing that I did was go home and tell my sister I've met this fabulous girl and uh, I could not stop talking about her. I was filled with Rosie. I was, I, you know, I was in the sixth form at school. You know, I write, my, write her name on my rough workbook. Oh, how romantic. You know, I was filled with Rosie. I was preoccupied with thinking about her. Now, there is a sense in which... When it comes to being filled with the Spirit in the Ephesians 5.18 sense, it is something that we do ourselves. We preoccupy ourselves with God. That is why the next thing Paul says is speaking to one another and singing to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. So there is something that we do. As we sing and make melody in our heart to the Lord, as we relate with him in worship, so we are preoccupying ourselves with God. And so we are filled with him. So there is that sense of being filled with him, but there is also another sense of being filled with him uh, where we are dry and barren and we need to come and have another drink. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And in our spiritual lives, we do go through times when... We're barren, we get tired, we get exhausted. We come and have a drink and and God will fill us. But there's, there's more. One of the things about being filled with the Spirit is, as I've said, it's a gateway into the supernatural. And Paul uses a very interesting word when in Ephesians 1 when he talks about the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you were to ask me what's the most important chapter in the Bible, I would say every single one, but Ephesians 1 is very important. (laughs) Um, Because in the first part, we get what the Father does in our salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then we get what the Son's done in our salvation. He's redeemed us, shed his blood for us. And then we get what the Holy Spirit does in our salvation. And Paul says that he is a seal guaranteeing our inheritance. Now, this is a very, very interesting concept because the guarantee of our inheritance helps us to understand what it means to live life in in the spirit. It's a, a, a Greek word that would be used in the way that people traded in Bible, to, in Bible days. So, just to give you an example, if I wanted to buy um, 10 camels and um, I'd got 50 sheep, 
I could go along to the trader and I would do a deal. 50 sheep for 10 camels. Fair enough deal. So I put one sheep down because I've only brought one with me because I can't bring 50 sheep with me. I put one sheep down as a deposit. Okay? I then have to go back home and before I can get my 10 camels, I have to bring the other 49 sheep. Now, 38 sheep and a couple of goats will not do, okay? It has to be in the kind that I've paid down, okay? Now, Paul uses that word. It's a legal term for what the Holy Spirit is in the deposit into us, that God gives the Holy Spirit to us as a down payment which guarantees our future, So we live not just in the present, but with a sense of an eternal perspective. So we live by revelation. So we live in what theologians call the tension between the already, so here we are, and the not yet. And so we live with that perspective of heaven. Heaven comes into us. We have revelation, we have understanding, and that means that we can bring heaven to earth. We can pray for the sick. We can pray for deliverance. We can pray for freedom. We can live and move in the supernatural. We bring heaven into our now perspective by the Spirit. We live by revelation. But we're also in the tension of the Not yet. So not everybody gets healed. Not every prophecy is right. Not everything we do is going to be perfect. No, it's not. But we have enough of heaven to get on and do the job by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there will be times when God gives us special anointings, special giftings to do special things that go beyond anything that we can do naturally. I was just remembering this morning that the first time I preached on John 7:37 was I was in an Anglican church, huge Anglican church, there was about 500 people there, and uh, there were people there who were evangelicals, there were people there who were filled with the Holy Spirit, so you might call them charismatics. There were people there who were just total unbelievers and only went to that church because it was an Anglican church. And I preached, and it was Pentecost Sunday, from John 7.37. And uh, I was a bit younger then, and very enthusiastic, and I was proclaiming what God was going to do, and that God did all these things that he did in Bible days, you know, that Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that God heals, and God fills people with his Holy Spirit, and all of that. And I was passionately preaching it, thundering it out from, from the pulpit. End of the service, I walked to the back of the church, And in those days, the vicar or the preacher would stand and shake everybody's hand as they walked out. And so there was this big vestibule and this crowd of people were flooding into the the vestibule and my worst nightmare happened because this man walks across and collapses, falls on the floor. And I'm thinking, I've just preached this in front of all these people and a load of them were sceptical. And the church warden was very, very sceptical 
about anything to do with healing. He was, the doc- he was a doctor. He was the mayor of Hove. He was very senior in, in the, the whole kind of locality. So he's not the kind of guy you want to fall out with, really. Um, but he was very, very sceptical of what I'd, I'd preached. So this man crashes out on the floor, stops breathing. So everybody kind of stands back, has a heart attack. And um, the doctor comes over, starts doing the thing they do on casualty, you know, pummeling the chest and doing the, you know, the nose blocked and breathing in the mouth job. Absolutely no flicker of life. Minutes are going by, nothing at all. And um, he's not moving. And by now his lips are starting to go blue. And I'm thinking, what do I do now? And I thought, I'm going to, I said to the doctor, do you mind if I pray for him? So the doctor said, well, you can try. So I knelt down and put my hand on his chest. And it was a cop-out prayer, if I'm honest. I prayed that God would give him life, thinking it could be eternal life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And to be honest, I wasn't full of faith, but I knew I had to do it. And it was like God's presence was there. And suddenly this man sat bolt upright and started to breathe. A cardiac ambulance came, took him to hospital. Rosie's dad, who was alive then, went to the hospital with him. And in the hospital, Rosie's dad led him to the Lord. He wasn't a Christian. And that man lived for another six months as a, as a Christian. Now, the interesting thing is that doctor phoned me up at midnight that night. He said, I just want you to know that that man had died. And what I saw was a miracle. I now believe. You see, this is what the Holy Spirit does. When you are in different situations, there are times when we can expect the Holy Spirit to come on us powerfully and use us. Now, it's not always as dramatic as that. But even, you know, mums at the school gate talking to other mums, the Holy Spirit can use you. Guys at work, in your situation, talking to somebody else, God can use you. There can be those unexpected, you know, it says in the book of Acts on several times, and Paul filled with the Spirit, and Peter filled with the Spirit. There are these anointings that come upon you that can give you the power and the authority to act in these situations. So, as we are in the river, as we are flowing, there are the crisis experiences, born of the Spirit, baptised in the Spirit, fillings of the Spirit, the ongoing life in the Spirit where we are regularly filling ourselves with the Spirit by tuning our minds in and our hearts into God and times of anointings when God will come upon us. And with this, I'm going to conclude by saying that we need to learn to walk in the Spirit and that means everything that we do, we do in the realm of the Spirit. So in Galatians chapter 5, Paul uses the expression twice, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfil the desires of the flesh. So he says it just a few verses in to Galatians 5 and then towards the end of Galatians 5 and uh, it says walk in the spirit. The interesting thing is that the word uh, 
it's translated walk in most translations. Some translations um, translate the word differently. But there are two different Greek words that are used. And the first one is the, the, the word peripateo, from which we get the English word peripatetic. It means walking about. So you walk about in the spirit. So you, the whole round of life's activities, you walk in the spirit. So what does that look like? Well, it means when you're stuck in a traffic jam on the M25, you don't get angry. You put on a worship album and you walk in the spirit. Um, that's a very simple illustration, but it means that when stressful times come on us, we've learned to walk in the spirit. We yield to the spirit. So the whole round of life's activities we do in the realm of the spirit with a consciousness of the Holy Spirit. The other word that's used later in the chapter is the Greek word stoichio, which means to keep in step with. So it's like soldiers marching and keeping in step. And uh, I, think, I think it may be the NIV that actually translates it, keep in step with the spirit. And so there is that sense of keeping in step, not just with the Holy Spirit and obeying him, but keeping in step with one another. So we maintain our life in the spirit by our fellowship one with another. That's why Paul says to the Philippians, he says, if there is any love in you, if there is any consolation in Christ, he, said, uh, he says that you participate in the spirit. If there is any participation in the spirit, any fellowship, koinonia, in the spirit. And then he talks about our relationships. He says, don't complain. Don't moan at one another. Be like Jesus. Serve one another. Honour one another. So your quality of life as a church, I believe, will be, your fellowship will be commensurate with your signs, wonders and miracles and outreach. So when a church is dwelling together in unity, their God commands the blessing. And so all of those aspects of life in the spirit are very, very important to us. So I want to ask you this morning, are you thirsty? I hope you are. I'm thirsty. I, I get up every morning and I'm thirsty for more of God. And I just want to say, I, I don't know you, if you've never had that experience of being born again, you can be saved this morning. You can be born again. You can know God as your father through Jesus dying for you on the cross and you can receive new life. You can receive him into your heart. All you need to do is to come to him and just acknowledge the fact that you do need him. And the Holy Spirit will nudge you. Okay, You can't do that on your own. The Holy Spirit will nudge you into that. It's wonderful when that happens. You can struggle and wriggle for all your worth, but you won't get away with it. He won't let you go. So if you're born of the Spirit, that's great, but are you baptised in the Spirit? If you're baptised in the Spirit, are you going on being filled with the Spirit? 
Are you fellowshipping with the Spirit? Are you living your daily life in the routine of daily life flooded with the Spirit? I tell you what, when God finds a church where all its people are living like that, you will automatically start to grow. I believe that. Because it will be such a testimony to the world out there and people will come in and they will say, what is it about these people? And you'll find when you, when you look at the book of Acts, you know, it was the community of God flooded with the Spirit that became either an attraction or it drove people away because they couldn't take it. So be filled with the Spirit. So I hope that's helped you. I'm passionate about this because I, I'm sad when I see charismatic churches not living in charismatic life. I'm sad when I see Christians not living in the good of their inheritance. So God bless you. Go for it. I'd love us to... Can, can we do that song? Yeah, it's a, a lovely, lovely song. Holy Spirit, you're, you're welcome here. And uh, I don't know quite what God's going to do this morning. Um, but as we sing it, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Why don't you just, whatever point you're at this morning, bring your heart and your life to him. And if you're not yet saved, just reach out to Jesus. Ask him to save you. Ask him to come into your life. And if you need help with that, you can speak to, uh, speak to people here who will help you and pray with you. If you're not yet baptised in the Spirit, you can be baptised in the Spirit even as we're singing. If you reach out, reach out to him. And if you are just thirsty this morning and just need, I hesitate to use the word top up. I don't like using that expression, but I'm going to use it anyway. <laughs> if, you need, if you need topping up, come and just open yourself as we sing. And worship is a big key to that. It's a massive key. And opening your heart through singing and uh, just making this song your, your prayer. So let's stand together. Let's, I find it's often helpful just to assume a, a posture of receiving. I'm just going to pray and then we'll sing, sing the song. Yeah. Father, we want to thank you that you give the Holy Spirit as a free gift. Jesus, we thank you that you suffered and died. Lord, you placed yourself on the altar of sacrifice. And Lord, we see in days of old when the sacrifice was on the altar, the fire fell. And Lord, we thank you that through your sacrifice now the fire falls. And Lord, we bring ourselves as living sacrifices to you. Lord, living in the good of your sacrifice for us. And Lord, we're saying, please pour your spirit upon us. Please come and flood us afresh. Come upon us.